Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be gathering with you all this morning on this beautiful day. And last time I checked, I don't think it was raining outside at this point, which means it's better than it was yesterday. Uh, And we're grateful if you are here for the very first time. If if you happen to maybe be at Trunk or Treat uh, on Friday night, just an extra warm welcome to you. Share it to all those who are joining us online this morning, too. We are glad that you are worshiping with us. Now, I'm really excited this morning because we are coming out of one of the the best series that we've had in a long time, the series about why I'd walk away. And one of the things we learned about uh, Christianity, about people that walk away from church, it's often not because Christianity is confusing or anything was wrong about the faith, but it's because it was uninspiring. It was unengaging. Many times even unimaginative. And, you know, I'm just starting off on this note because if you're here this morning and and this is your impression of the church, I I have a few words for you. Sorry. As a church leader, and on behalf of many other church leaders, we're, we're sorry if we've missed it. You know, sometimes I think that maybe we could do better. Sometimes the church has taken on a a sort of a new form in the way that, that maybe it wasn't really the way it was supposed to be back in the original church. But that's okay because that's what we're doing today. We're going back to the OG version, the the church that we see in the book of Acts, which is all those things. It is engaging. It's inspiring. It's imaginative. And so I'm excited to be kicking off this series today called To Be Continued as we study the book of Acts. And I want to begin by sharing with you a story about a deacon, a deacon that serves the local church, a, a deacon that I know, probably even a deacon that you might know. A deacon that has served the church for what seems like forever. You know, he's one of the most faithful believers, one of the most faithful people when it comes to serving the church through his his giving and his time spent. I mean, over the years, this this guy has served on every single committee the church has ever had, from being the chair of the, the council down to, you know, working with the safe church on Sunday mornings. You can find him brewing coffee one Sunday. The next Sunday, he's out in the parking lot. Then you see him, you know, helping with communion one Sunday. Then he's, you know, in kids' church another Sunday when there was a, a building project happening. Well, this was the guy that was helping lead the charge to help raise funds. Next thing you know, he's helping pick the carpet patterns. He's choosing the, the paint colors for the walls. I mean, this guy. I was just everywhere. And by the time the, the organ was installed and the, the church pews were bolted to the floor, well, his blood, sweat, and tears were basically mixed into the mortar of the church building. There was no doubt that this deacon loved the church. Nobody ever would question that. In fact, legend has it that this deacon, in 40 years of serving the church, never missed a single Sunday. But you know how legends go. They're not always fully true. But this is all good stuff. And if you're anything like me, you love this deacon. Church needs people like this. But the thing is, sadly, is that this guy never really experienced the full measure of new life in Christ. He was faithful in so many ways, but it's possible he lacked a a fully accurate understanding of what it meant to be the church and to actually live out the faith as the church. So you may be wondering, where did he go wrong? I mean, did he even do anything wrong? And quite honestly, no. He didn't do anything wrong. But he was so focused on the church that he kind of had somewhat of a a fundamentally flawed idea of what the church was meant to be. He was so focused on the church that he never really courageously talked to anybody about Jesus. People outside who are non-believers, they might know this deacon, and they might not even know that he's a Christian. 
See, he had an understanding of the church that he was missing one of the major points. He was missing the life that Jesus had actually died for him to have. An exciting, imaginative, creative, engaging, and inspiring faith life. And so let's start here. How do we, brothers and sisters, how do we prevent becoming that guy? I mean, for myself, I, I, I sometimes worry that I'm going to become that guy because I love all those things. I love serving. I love being behind the scenes. I love helping paint the walls and things like that. But how do I maintain a, a, a thriving, robust faith life as part of the church? Well, I think we start by getting an understanding of what is the church? You see, the church was never meant to be a, a static, fixed institution. But when we hear the words church, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The building? Yeah, I heard a few of you people say, yeah, the building, right? And, but at its inception, in the beginning, the church was not just a building. The church was a movement. It was a movement built upon a conviction that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who died for sinners and rose back from dead, proving that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. And through his life, through his death and through his resurrection, an invitation was then sent out. Confess, repent, and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, which was, which is, and which will continue to be the good news for us. Amen? All right, good. No one's sleeping yet. And so began the church. Except the church today, you know, it has a little bit of a different meaning than it did back in the first century. You see, the word church that we use today was originally translated from a a New Testament Greek word called ecclesia. Perhaps you've heard this word before. Ecclesia has a really nice ring to it. And ecclesia basically means an assembly or a gathering of people around an an idea. And when you dig a little bit deeper into this word, because the original language, often you get a a couple root words and they kind of mash them together and move some letters around. It gets a little bit confusing, but the root words of ecclesia is actually two different words. And those two words, one means out of and the other means to call. So think of ecclesia like this. It's an assembly of people called out around an idea. And that idea for us is Jesus. But over the years, a terrible thing begin to happen. You see, people begin to view the church more like a place that you just went to, you know, receive religious services. And that English word that we were using slowly begin to get substituted by more of a, a German understanding of the word church, which is, finds its origins in this word Kirche, which if you happen to be a German language major here, I apologize if I'm butchering that word, Kirche, which means a sacred place where you gather for religious purposes. So you can see the difference here. This little nuance in language led to a major shift in sort of the fundamental understanding of how people related to the church. So as a result, throughout the Middle Ages, especially as people went to church, it became more about being a place that you attended or an event that you sat through rather than a movement that you were a part of. And that's how the kind of the church became this fixed institution that basically provided services and in some ways was controlled by powerful people that would then abuse their power for their own personal interests rather than for its intended purpose. So as we consider, as we think about our understanding of the church today, I want you to consider these statements. If church is primarily a place that you go 
rather than a movement that you're a part of, this series just might be for you. If church feels like an event that you have to sit through rather than a place that you go to to learn and to grow and to be challenged in your faith, I believe this series is for you too. If church seems static, fixed, like it's kind of stuck in its ways rather than being a a creative, inspiring, and engaging environment, then this series is definitely for you. And lastly, if church is a place where you feel like only Christians are welcome, rather than a place where everyone is welcome to become a Christian, well, then this series is definitely for you. And let me tell you, this church is definitely for you. And so this is where we're headed here this morning, y'all. I want to say this. Church is a movement, and movements move. And if you're part of the movement, you too are moving. Hear that again. Movements move, and if you're a part of the movement, you are moving. So let's turn to God's Word this morning and see how this whole thing got started. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, and even though, you know, what we're reading from was originally called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Church, the first chapter doesn't actually start with the church, ironically. Can you guess who it starts with? Jesus, that's right. It starts with Jesus, which I love. I mean, we must love, right? I mean, we are a Jesus-centered church. And if you think about it, we wouldn't have church without Jesus. As one of my favorite pastors often says that Jesus should always be the star of the dish. He may or may not be influenced by some cooking shows. I don't know. But Acts is written by a guy named Luke. If you know anything about Luke, he writes the gospel account, then he writes the book of Acts. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. And originally, he he was planning to write just one book. But back in the first century when he was writing, he kind of had like a, a, a word, a max count, word count. You know, the scrolls that they would write on were only so long, so, you know, he could only write so much. And he got to a certain point where he was like, oh, I still have like twice as much to say. So then you have the, the Gospel of Luke, which is kind of like all about Jesus. And then you have the, the Acts, which starts with Jesus as kind of a transition. And then it talks about the church and, and how the Gospel spreads. And Luke was a smart guy. He was a physician. He was even believed to have been a disciple of the Apostle Paul loosely. And Luke's intent was simple. All he wanted to do was accurately recount the acts of God through the work of his faithful, obedient people. So Acts 1 starts with Jesus, who had just been raised from the dead about 40 days earlier. And, you know, a lot of people wonder, what what happened during those 40 days after Jesus died and rose again before he ascended? Well, you know, we don't know his every move. But we definitely know that Jesus was on the move. We know for certain that he revealed himself to a number of people. In fact, hundreds of people. And he did that for two reasons. One of the reasons was simple. He, all he wanted to do was prove to people that he was who he said he was. The Messiah, the Son of God, who would conquer death and rise again into new life. The other reason was to continue teaching about this place he kept talking about. The kingdom of God. Before he ascended back up into heaven to to sit at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And this is essentially where we jump into the text today. We're going to be in Acts 1. So if you have your Bible, we'd love for you to turn to Acts 1 with us as we kind of walk through this text. And words will also be on the screen here this morning as well. But here we are. Jesus is gathered with his disciples on a hillside. There's about 120 other people gathered with them. And then we jump in. Verse 6. 
Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, what they're asking is like, yo, Jesus, you've been talking about this kingdom thing for like enough time now. Like, what's your next move, bro? Like, what, what is going to happen here? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pause there for a second. This has got to be you know, maybe one of the strangest kind of scenes in, in the Bible, right? I mean, not strange in a, in a supernatural way, but in a practical way. I mean, Jesus gives them the largest assignment that they could ever imagine, right? He doesn't give them any explanation. There's no workflow. There's no roadmap. There's no spreadsheets. There's no plan of action whatsoever. And then he just goes. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And just like that, in an instant, he's gone. I mean, could you just imagine the looks on those disciples' faces as they start furrowing their eyebrows a little bit, looking at each other, going like, wait, wait, hold, hold on. Did, did he just say what? Did, did he really just say to the ends of the earth? And, and his, Jesus is ascending. They're yelling up at him. He's like, yo, Jesus, do you know how big the world is? And he's kind of smirking, laughing, looking down at them. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know where I'm going. I can see every square inch of it, and you don't even know yet how big the world is. I mean, this is quite the scene when you begin to imagine it. But you see, it's in this passage that we find one of the most important statements that Jesus gives in relation to the church. It actually helps us, and it helps the disciples answer a lot of the questions that we might have about the church today and, and, and who we're supposed to be. You know, it's in verse 8, which is basically the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. It's the mission statement for these first followers of Jesus. And believe it or not, it's still the mission for the church today. And so I want to make sure that we don't miss anything in this verse here today. Because this is really where it all starts, verse 8. So we're going to kind of walk through it together and pull out some important things. So starting back at the start of verse 8. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, Jesus informs them here. He doesn't instruct them. He doesn't command them. He informs them of what's going to take place. That the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them sometime after he ascends into heaven. And, and we know because we have the Bible, so we can read ahead and kind of see what happens. But for them, they, they had no idea how long this was going to take. Fortunately, it only took 10 days before the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in the upper room. You know, you got the, the tongues of fire resting on their heads. I mean, just a, a wild, wild scene. We know that today is the day of Pentecost. But let me just name something that I think a lot of us will probably relate to when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit makes us a little bit nervous, doesn't he? Would you say? See, I think for many of us, the churches that we were raised in, things got a little bit weird when the Holy Spirit showed up. If the Holy Spirit showed up at all. Because the Holy Spirit has this ability to kind of make things uncomfortable. He's kind of like the, the wild uncle that may or may not show up to like the family holiday functions. And, and even if he does, you have no idea like what kind of attitude is he going to have? What's he going to be wearing? Is he going to bring anything or not? What kind of crazy things are going to come out of his mouth? You just never know. He's consistently unpredictable, but not in the best possible way. The Holy Spirit's a lot like that. 
very unpredictable, but in the best possible way. And whether we like it or not, we all have a little bit of that wild uncle inside of us. If you're here this morning and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, well, you have the Holy Spirit in you already. But the reality is, I think we often neglect him because we don't always understand what he's doing. Things kind of get weird. They get uncomfortable, partly because, well, we lose control when the Holy Spirit takes over. We can't control the Spirit of God. And, and as a fellow human, like you and I are the same, like I get this. I know how much we like to control things. And for the Holy Spirit to be yielded to, we have to let go. Therefore, I think we find a lot more comfort and a lot more security in subscribing to, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible, right? And we kind of neglect the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. I, I grew up on the other side of, the east side of the border in an area called Toronto, the greater Toronto area. For some of you who might be Canadian to know that area, so about 45 minutes east of the big city out there. And there was this church, kind of a well-known vineyard church, Back in the mid-90s, uh, they experienced a move of God like they had never experienced before. The, the Holy Spirit started to do things. And it put them on the map because it caught people's attention. Why? Because things got a little bit weird. They eventually dubbed this kind of era of the church called the Toronto Blessing. And, and what happened was the Holy Spirit began to manifest in ways that they had never experienced before. Through signs and wonders, miracles of healing, things like uncontrollable holy laughter. People being slain in the Spirit. I mean, all of which, if you're not, if you've not seen before and you're not used to seeing, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable because it is a little bit weird. As I read about it, you know, many people said that things didn't really get weird until people started roaring like lions and barking like dogs. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that's when it got weird. I'm pretty sure it was a little bit weird before that. But before you start casting any judgments, because it's, it's easy to do that, right? We sometimes question the authenticity of some of the charismatic movements that are kind of focused on the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this. We don't always need to understand what God is doing through His Spirit. We just need to understand that God is doing something through His Spirit. And with that said, you know, I, I believe that we could benefit from some exposure from growing in the area and getting a little more comfortable with that third person of the Trinity. Because as we see in the text, I mean, it seems pretty important that, you know, we would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's really interesting about this scene in the book of Acts is that, you know, all these people, all the disciples, they were already followers, right? They had seen Jesus crucified. They saw him raised back to new life. They had, you know, affirmed it. They'd all seen him resurrected. They had stuck around through all this weirdness. They were on board. The, the ship had sailed. They had bought into this movement. They didn't need any more convincing. They didn't need any more proof. But what they did need, Jesus knew. They needed the one thing that was going to help them accomplish the mission that Jesus was presenting to them and giving them. And they didn't know they needed this thing. And part of the point Jesus is making here with the Holy Spirit is he's establishing a new era of the faith. You see, every significant movement of God begins and ends with God. Every significant move of God begins and ends with God. So just consider for a second the Old Testament. We know it begins with God. I mean, there was nothing. It was void, right? The earth was void before God. And where does it all point? Well, we learn that it all points to Jesus. And then Jesus is born. 
And there's this kind of short Jesus era, you know, 30 plus years where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then, well, he dies on the cross, conquers death, and is ascended back into heaven. And then a new day dawns as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people. Because every significant movement of God begins and ends with God. I mean, let's be honest. Let's think about it for a second. Do we really think that the first century Jesus movement was so effective because Jesus picked all the best people to be his followers? Thieves? Fishermen? Dropouts? Nope. He certainly didn't pick the best. Oh, but surely they must have had exemplary faith, right? Well, you tell me. Peter, their first leader, he's known for denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Judas betrayed him. Even Thomas. Think about what he's known for. His sort of claim to disciple fame is that he doubted Jesus' resurrection. I mean, they did not have exemplary faith. But they did have faith. And they had gifts. And they had skills that only Jesus could see. And because of God, and only God, they were able to accomplish their mission through the power of of God's Spirit. And that's because God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And he's still doing that today through each and every one of us, equipping us through the power of his Spirit to answer the call that he has put on our lives as individuals and as the church. Which leads to this right here, the book of Acts. Filled with all these miracles, these signs and wonders, which are so awesome to read about. It's hard to read through the book of Acts and not get excited about being part of the church, right? But all the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders, it's not the point. Speaking in tongue, good. Healing the lame, amazing. Giving sight to the blind, oh my goodness. Giving hearing back to the death, raising the dead, unbelievable. All of it so stinking awesome. Not the point. The point it's Jesus. And we can't miss that here today. No matter what the Holy Spirit does through each and every one of us, through our lives, is not the point. The point is Jesus. It always points back to Jesus. Every significant move of God in the church and in our own lives begins and ends with God and ultimately points to Jesus. Which is why the very next line is so crucial for us to catch in verse 8. You know, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And what does God want from us? Well, he wants us to worship him. He wants us to glorify him through everything that we do. And he tells us exactly how we're going to do it, by being his witnesses. And I think that we should be familiar with the idea of what a witness is here in the 21st century. I mean, to be a good and effective witness— all you've got to do is, you know, testify to what you've seen. The job of a witness is not to really do anything except to tell people what's already been done. And as Christians, you know, there are two ways that we can do this. Obviously, we can speak things. We can give testimony to what God has done in our lives and the lives of others that we've seen. Or we can live it out. Now, I remember when I first got saved— I didn't accept Jesus until I was in my mid-twenties, late-twenties. And, you know, I didn't exactly live a, a great life before that. You know, I, I was a sinner, absolutely. You'll hear a couple of details here. But I tell you, when I accepted Jesus, when I met him for the very first time, uh, my life was never the same again. 
See, I was an a, an electrician, construction worker, so I worked in an environment that, you know, every third word out of my mouth was a cuss word. You know, and so when I accepted Jesus, well, this radical transformation, this, this weird thing began to happen where all of a sudden I heard people swear and I was like, that just doesn't sound very nice. And then I began to swear and I'm like, wow, I don't really sound like a very intelligent or nice person cussing every third word. And all of a sudden, God just did a work in my life and I no longer swore. You know, not living, you know, with a great moral life. You know, I, I was involved in things in my life. I, I like to drink. And not just to have a couple of beers, I like to get drunk. You know, I, I lived in a, in a world where I thought everybody smoked marijuana. So I did too. You know, I even thought everybody watched pornography. That was just part of a healthy life as a, as a non-Christian. These are the things that the world tries to tell you is right. And suddenly, I accept Jesus and all these desires start to just kind of disappear. Suddenly, I no longer had an appetite for any of those things. And, and people begin to notice it. My friends, my family, especially my co-workers. I hardly even had to say anything. It was just in the way that my, my life was organically beginning to produce the fruits of the Spirit. I became more gentle. I became more loving. I was a lot more patient. You see, my life organically became a witness to the transformative power of Christ in me before I ever even spoke a word about that. But once I became a little more knowledgeable and a little more confident, I could tell people, oh yeah, the reason why I don't swear anymore is, well, it's because of Jesus. Have you met Jesus? Do you know about this guy? Well, it's amazing, you know. Oh, Dylan, like, why, don't, why don't you want to get drunk with us anymore? Well, I don't know. I just don't have the desire anymore. You know, I met this guy that changed my life completely. You should, you should give him a chance. You want to hear about him? You know, so our words kind of complement our actions. And here's the thing about being a witness, friends. The job is simple. Just tell the story. You don't have to try to convict people. You don't even have to try to convert them. Just tell the story. And let God, through the power of his spirit, do the rest. And I'll admit that, you know, I don't always get it right. I have a lot of room in my life for improvement. But when I do get it right, I think it's a good thing. And I think people see a, just a sliver of Christ in me. And that's transformative for them. And so I want to pose a question to you all this morning. How is your witness? Are you living a life that others might feel is worth imitating? You know, when people look at you, do they see Jesus? Do they see the Savior in your life? Now, if they don't, you know, the problem isn't even that it makes Jesus look bad, because it kind of does, but you know, he's a big boy. So he can handle the criticism. The problem is, it just isn't true. You're not a reliable witness if your life is saying things that aren't true. And your actions will always speak louder than your words. And one of the most powerful ways to be a witness is to tell people what's been done in your life by living like the God who gave you new life. Amen? You see, one of the more unique things about this verse this isn't something that, you know, English readers might typically pick up on. And I'm, I'm grateful for my education at Calvin Sem about this. That I, I know kind of how to dig deeper in some of the, the wording. You will be 
my witnesses. That verb, you will be, it's three words in the English language, but in the original text, it's only one word. And, you know, the, or, the sort of origins of the word are actually found in some other really important statements. In the Gospel of John, there's all these I am statements. Are, are you all familiar with the I am statements? Like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, believe it or not, the verb used for I am is the same verb that's used for you will be. And so what Jesus is saying here, and he's not commanding us. He's not giving us instruction. I mean, he's hardly informing us. What I think he's doing is he's describing something about who we are down to the core of our existence. Being his witness is not an action. It's not something we do. It's part of who we are. It's in our genetic makeup now through our new life in Christ. It's who we are as God's chosen people. And so as the church, we ought to be a reflection of this. We ought to be a reflection of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Because you see, it all begins with God. It all points to Jesus. And lastly, it keeps on moving. And that's what we see in the remainder of verse 8. So the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. And this last section, verse 8, kind of becomes sort of the outline for the book of Acts. A little kind of like nerd Bible trivia. Chapter 1 through 7, tell of the witness of Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11, then tell of the witness in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 12 to the end, then tells of the witness to the ends of the earth. See, this verse is foundational for us to build our faith upon. It's foundational for us to live an exciting life, the life that God has created us to live. You see, Jesus has equipped us through the power of his spirit to live a life like this, one that is inspiring, one that is engaging, one that is imaginative. This is who he has created us as the church to be. And all we have to do is look at these first followers of Jesus and to see how they lived it out faithfully. I mean, first, right in Jerusalem, the streets were filled with the preaching of the good news. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that next week when you come back for part two. You're going you're to hear that this was some of the worst seeker-unfriendly preaching that's probably ever been preached. But it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And thousands of people still got saved in one day. And then Philip, he... He kind of breaks out. He, he sort of breaks the taboos of Judea and he crosses over the border into a place called Samaria. And you know what was in Samaria? Samaritans. And you know who didn't get along very well? The people in Samaria and the people in Judea. So could you imagine a, a believer from Judea coming to a place they're already not welcome and trying to, to preach this message of hope, salvation to people that want, didn't want nothing to do with him? Well, he couldn't have done that with his own power. It was only through the power of the Holy Spirit's and this message, this movement, it couldn't be stopped. And this thus began the beginning of a, a social revolution where the good news of Jesus Christ was tearing down all the walls that once divided humanity. Whether you were a Jew or a Greek or male or female, circumcised, uncircumcised, whether you were slave or free, rich or poor, Canadian, American, blue or green or Calvin or Hope, it no longer mattered because everyone embraced, everyone sat down at the same table, everyone experienced being one in Christ, one in spirit, one church. Friends, we are the global church, not just us here. 
We are everywhere, and we are part of a movement. And there had never been anything like this before. Nothing could stop this movement. It was and is and will continue to be the good news for all. Jesus died so that we, people of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue, could have new life in Christ. But the buck doesn't stop there, my friends. The good news has no end to itself. When we accept Jesus and we become part of his church, we no longer just simply attend a building every week to worship. You know, the church is not meant to be sort of a static event surrounded by the four walls. No, by God's grace, the church is a movement. And you know what movements do? Movements move. And if you're part of the movement, that means that you are moving too. It all begins with God, points to Jesus, and it keeps on moving. So the big question for today is this, the one that I want you to take away with you. What are you waiting for? You waiting for God to move? Because God already did move. He moved for you. And now he's calling you. And he's equipped you through his spirit to move for the sake of others. Church, we're no longer waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. And so what does that mean for us today as the church? I think it means that we can't tighten our grip on the good news. We can't tighten our grip on what we have. We can't tighten our grip on our salvation. You see, God has started a good thing in each and every one of us. But it requires movement until the day it's completed when we get to stand face to face with our Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul writes some beautiful words when he writes to the church in Philippi that I want to share with you. This is part of his opening, how he greets the church. He says this, and I think this is something that we can receive here today because I think we are like the people that he's speaking to. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Church, it all begins with God, points to Jesus, and it's going to keep on moving until the day Christ returns. And we believe God is urgently calling us to be his witnesses. You think of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What might that look like for us? Our homes, our neighbors, our community, and yeah, the ends of the earth. But for many of us, most of us sitting here right now, I think the ends of the earth might just simply look like walking 50 feet across your street, inviting your neighbor over for dinner. Maybe a few weeks later, you walk 100 feet, invite your next neighbor over. Follow up, invite them to church. Before you know it, you're traveling halfway across your town to the ends of the earth to be a witness. But the thing is, not all of us are called to cross international borders. Not all of us are called to travel halfway across the globe to be his witness. But some of us are. 
And he has called some of us to do that. And, and we are privileged as Encounter Church to have people as part of our family who have that call on their life. If you've been attending Encounter Church for a while, you, you probably know the Maharjan family. Satya, his wife, Prasha, their kids, Pratya, Saral, and Sasha. It was almost 15, maybe almost 20 years ago that they came here to further their education with plans to return right away back to Nepal, where they're from. Yet God kept them here for whatever reason. They did a lot of good work for God's kingdom here. They helped build some churches, plant some churches, and they, they did it all by God's grace, and their family began to grow from two to five. And they became members of Encounter Church. And then a number of years ago, they, God began to plant a seed in their hearts, which was to move back home to Nepal and to plant a brand new church that we are privileged and honored to support and to partner with, Encounter Nepal. And so I'm going to ask you guys to do something today. As you, as you move out of here, something that you do that will continue to move across the country. We've got some, a table set up in the upper lobby with a bunch of cards. There's some Christmas cards, some encouragement cards. Simply sign your name. Write down something encouraging to them, and we're going we're gonna to send that to them to encourage them on their journey because it is a journey, and they're facing things in that country that we may never face here, and they need us to support them as they move and as they preach the good news in a very pluralistic place. Now, if you're here for the first time, if you've never heard of the Maharjan family, that's okay. We still want to invite you to join in just writing them a simple encouragement. You don't have to know them because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ and we are all part of the same movement. So church, here's where we're going to land things today. When Jesus informed the disciples that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they would be his witnesses from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth, when he looked them in the eyes, he might have been saying the words to them, but he was thinking about each and every one of us. And now, you know, Grand Rapids, for those people, were the ends of the earth. And now the ends of the earth to back again is a place like Encounter Nepal, a place like 50 feet across your street to your neighbors, your workplace, the community that you are a part of. The church is a movement. And if you're part of the movement, you too are moving. So sign the card. Maybe send them a gift. Pray for the Maharjan family. And church, let us be one that is on the move in our homes, in our communities, and to the ends of the earth. Stand with me and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the way that your word is speaking to us this morning about who we are as the church as people that you've blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit to live a, an exciting, to live an inspiring and engaging and a creative and imaginative life, a life that we could not live without you, recognizing that it starts with you and it ends with you and it always points to your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for the way that you've blessed us with your spirit so that we can do the things you're calling us to. And Lord, we just pray for the Maharjan family right now in the name of Jesus that they would be exp experiencing your love and your grace and that they would be encouraged to know that they have a church family on the other side of the world that is cheering them on and praying for them, trusting that you are doing a good thing.
through them. And so Lord, we thank you for the way your spirit is moving here today. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.